0: Good evening. It's good to be with you tonight on the second Sunday of Advent. Take this off just so it doesn't distract me or you. Have you ever gotten lost? Anyone here never got lost? I want to know. What? Oh, we have one person. Anyone who has a smartphone these days now has a GPS, usually integrated, and people seem to get lost less and less, unless they don't have a connection. But if you're like me, you'll remember those times when you were lost and very worried about not getting to where you needed to go. What a relief to finally figure out the way to your destination. There are other times when you may also remember where you're going someplace and you encounter uh, on the way difficulties, obstacles that are difficult to traverse. And I don't know if anyone with a GPS, in fact, has used their GPS and the GPS has led you to roads that are really roads that cars shouldn't be on. Have you that ever happened to you? Or when you come up on a deviation and you go to your GPS, you're like, how do I get around this deviation? A real pain, especially when you're working on a time frame. And the text for today's message, the second Sunday of Advent, has a lot to say about finding your way especially as it relates to wrong turns and obstacles that keep us from the most important destination in life. And of course that destination leads is the destination that leads to salvation. And so turn with me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We'll read to verse 6 um, the Word of God for today's message. Luke's Gospel in the New Testament, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> in the fifth year of of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etruria, and Troconetus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Do you know, I I practiced this a few times and I'm still not getting it right. (laughs) During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. What a message. And in a sentence, as we read through these six verses, this is how I would restate what we've just read in one sentence. And I do that to help me formulate an outline and make something that will be understandable. So here it is, as I give it to you, my summary of these six verses. Are you ready? John's Baptist, John Baptist's message is rooted in history and will always prepare the way to salvation, no matter the terrain. I'm going to repeat that. John the baptist's message is rooted in history and will always prepare the way to salvation no matter the terrain before we move forward let's pray god in heaven we know that you are a god that guides and leads and directs and you know we know that you know how to get us from point a to point b and we know that you love us and desire for us to know you and we pray that through Studying your word today and hearing it, we might know you better and walk with you in a way where we land at the destination that you have prepared before us for your honor and glory and for our good. We pray all of this in the name of the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. First thing, John's message, simple first point, is rooted in history. John's message is rooted in history. The first two verses attest to real history. Why can I say that? Because did did you see the names there? There are a number of names that I had trouble pronouncing by the way. Real people are involved because it has to do with real history. This actually happened. There's Tiberius Caesar. There's Pontius Pilate, the governor. Did you know that Pontius Pilate, by the way, this is an aside, it wasn't in my message, but he was exiled to this part of France, Lyon and Vienne, after what happened after the crucifixion of Christ. Did you know that? That's what kind of scoundrels have lived in Lyon and in this area. So if you want to know what kind of place this is. Then there's Herod, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. There's a number of Herods. This is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod before whom Jesus, Jesus would stand and not say a word. This was the Herod that Jesus called a fox. Tetrarch of Galilee, a real person. There's Philip, the Tetrarch. In the, Philip was, te, was uh, Herod's brother, and he was the Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis. I'm not going to try to say that again. There's I, oh, I practiced this and I just can't get it. No, I can't say it. Why can't I say it? Lysanias. Li, lisania, eh, That's it. Lisanius I got it. Okay. Lisanius the Tetrarch of Abilene. And then there's Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest. And then, of course, there's John. And we were introduced to John specifically just a few chapters earlier through Zachariah, his father, who served at the temple and heard that his wife, who was already pretty aged, was going to have a baby. He, he didn't believe and couldn't speak until the baby was born. And then he spoke and named him John. The first two verses attest to real history. These are real people. Now, why does Luke cite these people in these opening verses? I think it's because he wants the reader to understand that the way to salvation is connected to real history, things that really happened. Theologically, the word that we use or the phrase that we use when we talk about God's work in the world in time is the history of redemption. That's what we call it, the history of redemption. Just over a century ago, biblical critics who didn't believe the divine nature of the Bible considered the Gospel of Luke to be one of the most historically inaccurate Gospels of the four. That's what they believed about 120 years ago. This is what critics were saying about the Bible. Critics who didn't believe that the Bible was truly the Word of God, that it was predictive. And so they looked at these verses and they said, there's no way that this is real history. Because, for instance, Lysanias didn't exist. He didn't exist. In fact, there was a name that they found, but he, ruled about 50 to 60 years earlier than this time and as they said Luke's account is not according to real history but then I remembered as I was reading through this I remembered no about 30 years ago when I was in theological school or what we call seminary I remember my notes and talking about this particular passage and uh, and these particular names and what do I read but that It only took a few years after these critics said no way, he's the most inaccurate, that they found in these archaeological finds evidence that this Licinias existed. There was another one that existed and it was proven in the archaeological record. Not only that, but Philip the Tetrarch of these two regions that I'm not going to try to pronounce again, was also found in archaeological discoveries and it proves that Luke indeed he wasn't inaccurate at all he according to scholars from that point forward when these were found in the forties I think it was he was considered the most accurate of all of the four evangelists in regards to history it's not that the others are not but he was particularly accurate so much so that they would now call him the chief of all the historians. That's what these critics would call Luke after believing that he was so inaccurate. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with a message of Advent? Well, it has to do with the message that is so tied to history and to understand it, how important that history is to God's work of salvation in the life of the people mentioned but also in our lives today. You see, because if if the Bible does not recount history, things that really happened, our faith is in vain. Paul would say that in a different way when he talked about the resurrection. He would say, you know, if the resurrection didn't really happen historically, there are serious implications. And he's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, if that's the case, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and so it's not worth it. If it's not true, why would you even live it out? We would be the most pitied of people to live out the gospel or to live and be obedient to the truth of the gospel if it's not true, if it's not tied to what really happened in history. And a lot of people, you'll meet them. You'll meet them often. They'll say, oh, the Bible, yeah, it's, they're good stories. They help us morally. They're our moral compass to help us, but they're not really tied to re- reality, the things that really happened. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. This is tied because God is a God of history. In fact, he's the author of history. And he uses history. He works through history to bring about salvation, particularly to bring about his purposes. The word of God testifies to just how much God is interested in real history, and that should encourage us. God is truly interested in his Story, and especially in your story, each and every one of you individually. He's interested in your story. Your life counts for God. He knows all the details, the good and the bad of that story, where it's been and where it's going. He's interested in in it because, as simple as this, He loves you. You know, that's a very simple but powerful and profound application from a few verses that recount just a number of names, that recount history. Never forget how important it is that what God has done, he's done in history. Because we live in that history and he's still working in lives as he did then, He is doing now. He's not distant, but near. And he speaks to his messenger, that is John, so that the most important message in history be told to a world that needs change. Second point, John's message can change history. John's message can change history. History is a record, and as I thought about, how am I going to describe history in this particular sermon? You know, we could spend a lot of time talking about history. But I thought to myself, the first thing that came to mind as I thought about history, and I was inspired by a YouTube video that I saw to describe it. Here's what came to mind, just a little sentence about history. History is a record... Are you ready? Of choices and their impact on the world. History is a record of choices and their impact on the world. Maybe a historian would say to me, ah, oh, you're way off track. But I think I'm right on. Because I watched this YouTube video, and it was, it's, really, I did, and, and it was great. And, and, and it explains the history, get this, it explains the history of France in English, in 23 minutes. Yeah, you want this link? You got it, I'll send it your way. I was really mesmerized by it. The course of French history is tied to choices made by its leaders and its people over time. And trying to understand the reason for those choices makes history fascinating, instructive, and sometimes fearful. The choices of people, of societies, and nations have shaped history and will continue to do so for good and for bad. What are the films or the books that you have found the most stimulating? Of course, usually they tell a story of people like us who overcome conflict and obstacles and find resolution through their choices. Most story plots have these elements involved. Conflict. Challenge, climax, resolution. Don't believe me? Hollywood has been banking on that storyline forever. Authors know that that's the storyline that people want to read about and understand. Next time you read a book or watch a movie, take notice. John's message is aimed to help people make the right choice for real change in the face of conflict. And conflict comes as a result of sinful choices by sinful people. John is here presented to us. He has a message that he's given, that he's going to proclaim, and there's a key choice that he brings to the fore in his message. John proposes a change of behavior. Another word for that is repentance. Repentance is very much about a change of direction, that's what it means, a change of mind, literally is what it means, a change of mind when it comes specifically to sin. Repentance is the choice of a new direction. And John proposes not only a, a change of behavior, he proposes a different way. What is that way? The answer is found in the promise that he gives. Did you see that promise? It's a promise that is key. It is the promise of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The forgiveness of sin. Verse 3 makes it clear that John has been moving around to proclaim the message about God's forgiveness. He's gone through all the region, all around Galilee, and he's proclaiming it, and the message that he had attracted crowds. I love the word in French, les foules. Isn't that a great word, les foules? Some came because they were curious. A lot of people came, some came, they weren't really necessarily interested, but they were curious. And a lot of people are like that. You know, what's the common expression that you hear uh, when people are confronted with their failure? What do you usually hear? Well, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect, and that's a way of saying that in some way we're not responsible. It really is, and yet we know we are because we fail so often if we're honest with ourselves. Some came because they were guilty and they knew it. Forgiveness, and hold on to this because it's really important, forgiveness is the best remedy for those who feel the weight of their failure. Forgiveness is the best remedy for those who feel the weight of their failure. That's why it's such a powerful message. These that came because they were guilty and they knew it, they came with repentance because they longed for forgiveness and a new start. That's why the crowds came. And when they heard John's message, they came to get wet. They came for what he had to offer. And that's another key thing that we see here. A key action that he prescribes and that he proclaims is baptism. Now, John's baptism was a way to manifest the desire of forgiveness and a new start, or the desire for forgiveness and a new start at a specific time and place in Israel's history. It was very important. Everyone was waiting for the Messiah. John's baptism prepared people before the fulfillment of the Messiah's work, of Christ's work. It was symbolic of what they hoped to receive and here's John is proclaiming it and there's like, wow it's gonna happen, I better be ready. Baptism in our day is still tied to the promise of forgiveness and a new start but it's more than that. It is less of a sign of what one hopes that God will do and more of a sign of what God has already done through the work of Christ, through his finished work. And it's an act of faith. You're trusting in what he has done for your salvation. It's an action that we recently witnessed right here, just a week ago when Ines was baptized. And what a joy it was to witness that act of faith, wasn't it? History is dotted with people that have made the choice to change their history thanks to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a very well-known hymn written by an ex-slave trader. You probably know who I'm talking about. He's from the 18th century. We still sing today that hymn, and it's known around the world and sung by gospel choirs everywhere, and everyone loves to hear it. It's a hymn that testifies to the radical conversion of John Newton, who was a slave trader and who became a believer and then a pastor in London. It is still known and sung because it is a powerful example of how God's grace through forgiveness can change the direction, the course of one's life. You know what that hymn is, don't you? Amazing Grace. Newton's changed life is very much connected to John's powerful message of repentance and forgiveness because it prepares the way to Christ who changes people. This room is filled, I believe, with people whose histories have changed because of repentance and forgiveness. I really believe that. It's changed their history because it has led them to Christ. It has led you to Christ. I hope that's the case. It's led me to Christ, and it's changed everything. But unfortunately, it's not everyone's story. The good news is that the terrain for their salvation, nonetheless, has been prepared. Third point, final one, John's message prepares the terrain for salvation history, for the history of salvation, for the history of redemption. John's message prepares the terrain. It's literally there in the text. Now every day I walk my dog. His name is Aslan, or Aslan. He's a great dog. If you haven't met him, you need to. He's just awesome. And our circuit includes, as we walk around our our block, our circuit includes fields um, which are farmed. And they're farmed by the the, the only and last farm within Lyon city limits. It's great. We live right next door. And as I walk, you know, Aslan around the this, this, this circuit that we take and I see these fields and I wave to the farmer, Monsieur Perrault, uh, and he waves back. So that's kind of fun. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I know my local farmer in the city. It's really cool. And he has all his produce just literally meters from where we live, where he sells it. What's so interesting as, we, as I walk is I'm always amazed, and it's right around this time of the year that it happens, I'm always amazed, it's right around December, to see a newly plowed field. It's really spectacular. It's really, it really looks awesome. A far, you know, and a farmer understands how important it is to prepare the soil for the seed that he wants to plant for the harvest. And when you see tilled, dark, rich soil, just really well done, and very defined. You're looking at all the potential for a fruitful harvest. The farmer has prepared the terrain for the seed for a fruitful harvest. And you have that picture in mind. You have a good picture of what John is doing. What God has John doing here. He's preparing the terrain for the harvest of salvation, of redemption, as the coming of Christ becomes closer and closer in his actual earthly ministry on real terrain. John's message is conceived to prepare the terrain, the field for salvation. And this preparation is part of God's history of salvation. I've mentioned that a few times, his history of redemption. And I can say that because of the citation there. Did you see it? Where's the citation from? From Isaiah. God had been planning the terrain or preparing the terrain for the arrival of the Messiah for a long time. This is, Isaiah is many centuries before this. John is in fact the last in the line of prophets who announced the salvation to come through the Messiah, the Savior. But the big difference is that the Messiah had already come. By this time, Jesus was already born. By this time, the first Christmas had already taken place. And John's announcement is a follow-up to his coming as a babe. Now he's entering into the ministry that will lead people to understand all that God has done through his Messiah and would do through his Messiah to bring salvation to the world. Of course, that first coming took place on Christmas. And what's interesting about that first coming, what we're celebrating in these weeks, and as we lead up to uh, the 25th of December, we're celebrating Christ's first coming. And, and, you know, yeah, we do it every year. We think, oh yeah, it's great and wonderful. It's such a wonderful season. But do you know... Do you realize to what extent that first coming of Jesus has changed the terrain, has changed the landscape of our world? Do you realize how important that coming was to change the entire landscape of reality in our world? That's the message that we have. That, for me, just gives me a lot of excitement, especially as we think about announcing it next Sunday through singing and and a message about the coming of the Savior. Christ's first coming has forever changed the landscape. You might say, well, that sounds really nice, but I didn't just make it up. It's there in the text. Verse five, did you see it? Go to it, look at it. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. Did you see it? Now, what does that mean? Okay, here's another question for you. Are you ready? How many of you remember at least one principle from one of the hardest classes I had in math? Geometry. How many of you can articulate like that one principle from geometry? You don't have to do it. Oh yeah, we have a few people. Good, good, I'm glad to hear it. You'll tell me afterwards. Are you ready? Here's the principle that came right to mind that fits right into this text. The shortest distance between two points is Oh, you all know that. It's the only C I got in high school, geometry. Exactly. Well, if you had to get from point A to point B, and there were valleys and hills and mountains between it, it would take a long time to get there, and you'd have to really take crooked ways. Filled valleys, mountains and hills that have, been, that have been flattened and crooked ways made straight would facilitate access to your destination, wouldn't it? If it was all flattened out before you, you could get there and you can go from point A to point B in a straight line. This message, what it describes about the landscape and what God has done is about direct access to God. Point A, point B, you can get there and quick. The best access to God is through His Savior, Jesus Christ. That access, verse 6 tells us, is for everyone, for all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And, And God desires that. He wants everyone, everywhere, to repent and to be saved and to trust Him. And so all flesh is going to see it. According to this prophecy and this is the prophecy that introduces the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to a world and this is the prophecy that talks about the change of landscape that makes access to God possible direct God's way of leveling the terrain is extraordinary it really is he changed the the terrain by coming literally to walk on the terrain when he became a man. That's what we celebrated at Christmas. He changed the terrain by coming to walk on that terrain, that land, when he became a man. He also changed the landscape of a fallen world when he did this and this is really even more spectacular. He identified with our fallen state. He was without sin, but he identified with our fallen state. How can I say that? Well, if we go to verse 21 in this chapter, verse 21, what happens there? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Was he baptized because he needed to repent of his sin? No. Why was he baptized? Why is that the case? He's changing the landscape. He's making access to God possible. He was not baptized because he needed to repent, but to change the landscape that keeps us from full access to God, to identify with who we are and the reality of our fallen lives. And he will go on to do that and identify with us so much that he will take our place on a cross and take all the punishment for the sin that we committed, not him. That makes the significance of Jesus statement that he is the way to God all the more powerful. You remember what he said? I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus message te- message testifies or John's message testifies to the love of God. Now, it's true that uh, as we talked about uh, the second Sunday of Advent and the theme, you, you mentioned peace, and I think that's that's right on, but in a number of different um, uh, things that I found, they talked about love being also an important aspect of the second Sunday of Advent, so I'm gonna talk about love. So we, we, you know And that love leads to peace with God, so it all fits together, don't worry about it, okay? But John's message testifies to the love of God. That love does not deny the seriousness of our sinful state. It doesn't. There is no access to God without repentance, none. There is no access to God without forgiveness. Repentance on our part, forgiveness on God's part. But there is direct access to God thanks to the Savior who deals with our sin, who became flesh and dwelt among us, who is at the Father's side and has made God known. Because of God's love, the terrain for a better history, the history of salvation, has been prepared. Because of that love, there is good news of great joy for all the people. Hey, we're going to hear that in a few weeks, aren't we? Christmas reveals love's greatest gift. The Son of God come as a baby to change the landscape of history forevermore through His salvation. On the second Sunday of Advent we remember God's incredible love that brings peace with God. Christmas is a season of gift-giving. What motivates us to give gifts? Why do you give your gifts? Well, because you love and appreciate the recipient. Usually that's the case. And this passage tells us what this passage tells us is that God's it tells us specifically what God's gift is. And I'm going to go back to the introduction and to the illustration that I used in the introduction because God wants to give us this gift this Christmas. Are you ready for it? He wants to give us a new GPS. You might say, what are you talking about? He wants us to know and have God's plan of salvation. God's great love motivated him to offer his most precious gift, Jesus Christ, who is the only and most directly paved way to God. And the history of all who received this gift will never be the same.